We've all been in situations at work where we secretly wished we could tell someone exactly what we think about them. Or worse, we had to fight an urge to go across the table and smack them over the head. While this type of reaction would have satisfied us in the moment, the long-term effects may be severe. Where impulses are coming from? How do we control them? And why it is almost always better to respond than react? Stay tuned. Welcome to the Security Leadership Podcast. My name is Jerome Levy. My day job is a CISO. And I'm a member of the security community for more than 10 years. With me here is my co-host Jeff Snyder who is an executive coach and a security recruiter since 1997. Welcome, Jeff. Good afternoon. Jeff, today we're talking about impulse control. In 2015, Marshall Goldsmith and well-known leadership coach published a book called Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts. What are triggers and how do they impact our reaction? Triggers? include any stimulus that reshapes our thoughts and our actions. I was working with impulse control as a skill that I coach people on when we're working on emotional intelligence. Uh, Long before Dr. Goldsmith wrote the book, uh, in fact, part of my coaching training came from the Marshall Goldsmith group. So I know Marshall Goldsmith's work very, very well. And I sat here and thought, you know, if if at age 70-something, if Marshall found the time to write a book on triggers, triggers are impulse control, by the way, that must be a very, very important topic for the senior executives that he has coached for the last 30 to 40 years, because I know it's a a very important topic for cybersecurity leaders that I've had the privilege to work with. Can you give us some examples for what triggers are and how they manifest themselves? Sure. Well, triggers can come from a lot of different places. Triggers are not picky about uh, who they attack. They come to each and every one of us every day, all day. Uh, It has nothing to do with being an executive or just a flat-out human being. You will be triggered if you get out of bed. So what I mean by that is um, if you have a dog and that dog ate something that did not agree with them yesterday in the backyard, uh, for my dog, that might be a, a gopher or a rabbit or something like that. Of course, we didn't know that the dog had that for dinner before we gave him his real dinner. But about three o'clock in the morning, you might find out what your dog ate for dinner on the you know the living room carpet. Uh, so the trigger in that situation is hearing the dog, being awoken from a deep sleep, uh, going across the house to find out that the dog is having a problem. Well, if you react in that moment, you're not going to stop the dog from having 
a dog-like problem. The dog's going to keep doing what it's doing to empty its stomach. But if you choose to slow down, let the dog finish what it needs to do, don't yell and scream at the dog, don't kick the dog, the dog's doing something that's normal, and calmly clean up the mess, you might even be able to go back to bed and fall back to sleep. Well, that would be an extremely difficult thing to do for somebody, right? If the dog woke you up at three in the morning and you're waking up to this whole mess, um, that will definitely be a trigger. Well, you didn't say, Jeff, tell me about a simple trigger. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so what I, what I hear you saying is that we're going to get flooded by triggers all day, every day. That's exactly right. And triggers can come in, you know, different shapes and sizes and forms. And some may be yeah, mild and simple and maybe we're not even going to respond to them. That's right. But some of them are actually going to force you to do something about it. That is exactly right. So is it a part of our survival mechanism to actually respond to triggers? Sure it is. Um, when there's a danger situation that we're facing, we will be triggered by that danger. Uh, it generally is going to trigger the amygdala, a very small part of the brain that controls our fight or flight mechanism. So we're either going to stay and fight or we might turn and run. And neither one of those are necessarily wrong. And both of those are situations that you might have to react to in the moment. So triggers are not necessarily bad. Oh, no. Can a trigger be positive trigger? Sure, it can be positive. So you're managing a person, and that person has done a, an exceptional job. They delivered on a project. They added some value that you weren't even expecting. You could trigger that person in a very positive way, simply by you know, telling them they did a great job or Maybe it's such a great job that it's, it's, it's worth a dinner on, on the town or something like that. The, the point is, that I think you're trying to ask me about, is our triggers always bad? No, they're not. Our triggers always good? Absolutely, they're not. They're both. Which brings us to a, to a very important question, which maybe go back to our previous conversations about self-awareness. How does one go about identifying what triggers them? Or what trigger others? I'll give you one little gold nugget here. If you are one of the 11% of people who happen to have activator, a Clifton strength, if you have that in your top five, there's a really, really good chance that you may not have the greatest impulse control in the world because activators wake up in the morning and they don't even have to push a go button to get going. They're always ready to go. And sometimes going too quickly can be detrimental. So is there a way, maybe by looking at my strength or knowing my strength, to have a better understanding of what I'm being triggered by? Sure. If you have, and I'll use activator again, if you have activator or you have some of the other influencing traits, 
or perhaps you have achiever. Achiever is an executing trait. Um, you might be ready to go, except that the other five people on your team are still pondering. They're still thinking. They're processing. Um, some people process in a, a moment's time. Other people might need overnight to process or even longer. So, Jeff, are triggers also aligned or, or maybe impacted by your beliefs and values? Uh, yes. Yes. If you have a deep belief in something and somebody steps on your belief, somebody steps over a line that you think people shouldn't step over, chances are very, very good that you're going to have a reaction to that. Now, having a reaction and having a response are two entirely very different things. So we tend to get ourselves in trouble when we react to everything. We do it at a moment's notice. Some people react faster than others, but the bottom line is anybody can get in trouble from reacting all the time. We do much, much better when we interject time between the moment of the stimulus and the moment that we choose to respond to a trigger. Which lies with um, uh, an article I read recently that said a reaction, like you said before, a reaction is a survival-oriented and on some level a defense mechanism. It might turn out okay, but often a reaction is something you regret later. A response, on the other hand, usually comes more slowly. It's based on information from both the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. So why are we reacting and how do we move from reaction to response? I've mentioned activator, but I, I can go beyond that. So one of the reasons that I think people react is that they haven't spent enough time thinking about the other people around them. I'm going to call those people their audience. Could be your audience at home, in a, a sporting environment, uh, in a, a work environment. You're, other than during COVID, we are always around other people. Other people are going to do things. Sometimes they'll do them intentionally. Sometimes not intentionally. They're going to do things that encourage us or, or make us more productive. And sometimes they'll do just the opposite. And those things hit us over the head. And if we haven't consciously thought about it ahead of time, if we haven't thought about how our behavior impacts other people, and that's what, that's a big part of what emotional intelligence is. It's being a conscious about what you, uh, who you are and how you behave, it's being conscious about how you come across to other people. So you might be conscious about who you are and how you behave, and that's kind of uh, summed up by self-awareness. But if you're not thinking about how you're coming across to other people, it's very, very easy to react instead of more intentionally and more strategically responding. So is our current situation where, you know, you can't see the other person, you can't see your audience, you can't read their facial expressions, you can't read their emotions, you probably can't read their body language. 
does that even make it worse or more difficult? Sure it does. You can understand how someone is is feeling or what's going on in their mind by listening to their spoken words. You're going to pick up even more from their tone of voice. If you're dialed in and you're listening and you're being sensitive to hearing their tone of voice. Um, it's not all lost in our current situation because a lot of people are communicating over video. So you can see what someone else looks like. And I don't mean how they're dressed. I don't mean how their hair is combed. I mean looking into their eyes to see, is that person excited about talking to you? Or can you see that they're in tension? They have tension, they're, they're irritated, and you may be the cause of that. And you have to be able to be sensitive enough to see that. And talk about a, a reaction. Instant messaging tends to force us into a reaction because, ding, there it is. You, you, you have this, uh, you have a dopamine rush because you just got a message. And now you want to get back to them right away. Well, sometimes whatever that topic is, in fact, I would say a lot of times what that topic is, it's worthy of slowing down, processing, considering all the ramifications, all the things that could happen, and then picking up the telephone and having a live discussion. So, Jeff, aren't we expected as executives to think on our feet and react quickly? There are many times, you know, where you in a high-profile meeting, let's say a board meeting, and there is always this one board member that will ask you a left-field question, and, and you know that you never anticipate. What, what do you do in those situa situations? Well, here's here's one way to handle that. Um, if that question could even slightly be clarified. You might respond with a couple of questions before you blurt out your answer. Make sure that you're answering exactly what that board member has on their mind. Uh, something else you can do is simply give a, a short partial answer and make sure that you're on the right track. Make sure that you're on the track that that board member was expecting. And you might even be as, as blunt as to say, is this what you were expecting? Oh, yeah, it was. Carry on. Well, there's your invitation to talk more. You might have answered the question with your short answer, which means you don't need to talk anymore. Or you may find out that, no, that's not what I was asking at all. So before you've just given a dissertation, you have an opportunity to, to change your, your gears and change direction and start all over before you, you've blown the, the entire speaking opportunity. Which again, goes back to the same thing in the article. It may turn out okay, but oftentimes you're probably gonna regret later. You're just gonna jump and react. So that brings me to another question, Jeff. So why, why impulse control is so important? In most situations in life, 
we might think that we have absolutely no time and we must react. And I would bet you, and anybody can go do this, keep track of, of the next couple of days. Keep track of every time you have a, a trigger, something that, that causes you to want to react to it. And write down what you did, write down what the outcome was. And also write down, did I have time? Could I, could I have slowed down? Could I have given that thought a little more exercise before I reacted so that I could more strategically and more calmly respond it? Okay, podcast partner, uh, you seem to be asking me all the questions. How about if I throw one back at you? Go ahead. All right. In the world of cybersecurity, um, you guys talk an awful lot about incident response. Are you responding to the incident or are you more often reacting to the incident? That's a fantastic question. Most of us will say we're responding to incidents. But if I reflect back on, on what you said about triggers and what you said about you know, how those um, triggers can, in many cases, I mean, it's, it's part of your defense mechanism. I think when it comes to cybersecurity, I mean, we have a lot of those triggers, whether it's like, you know, some infection, whether it's, you know, some, some event that we've seen in the scene or, or whatever the case may be. I think in most cases we are reacting. And I think the reason that we are reacting is because, number one, we perceive or view that as kind of an immediate threat that we have to deal with. So it's kind of part of our survival. More oftentimes than not, it's nothing that sinister, nothing that bad. But I think our, our instinct is always to, or initially kind of go and assume the worst and just dial back from there. So I think we're definitely in many, many cases reacting. The other aspect is, you, you mentioned the, the dimension of time, and you mentioned that try to inject time before you actually respond. And this is something that we probably need to get much better at overall, because I've seen many organizations that they're not even sure how to respond to various incidents. And to me, it's very similar to what the military does. The reason the military and, and soldiers are running drills um, you know, during peaceful times is because this is how they practice. Because when the real thing happens, people rarely rise to the occasion. They sink back to their training, they stick back to their instinct. The same thing applies here. If you never practice how to respond to an incident, if you actually never practiced in a quote-unquote live fire, you probably will not know what to do when the real thing happens. And then if the first time that you're dealing with a real incident, it's when it really happens, then you're going to react because you're going to be under a lot of stress. And we are under stress, it's part of your survival. So you're reacting, you're not responding. You know, I've, I've never seen a job description 
that asks for someone who has incident reaction experience. That's an excellent point. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, yes. Is is it the is it the term that people desire? Incident response. It absolutely is, and yet I don't recall ever seeing a training class for incident responders that actually teach them, you know, how to inject time and slow down and respond. So this brings us to the end of our show today. We hope this brings more clarity to why impulse control is important and why it is better to respond other than react and smack someone over the head. So slow down, take a breath, count to 10, and as much as you can, inject time and give yourself the opportunity to respond better. So thank you, Jeff, for introducing us uh, to impulse control. And uh, I think it's something we should start practicing every day. You're absolutely welcome. We'll see you next time.